Cinephile. Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. Oh my goodness! Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won best picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us, and music is one of those great tools that brings us together. All right. There's baseball and World War II. It's kind of a dream. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. All right, yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Could have run that as the open. open. The Mule thrives in teasing ambiguity. For decades now, Eastwood has been one of the great interrogators of American social mores. That's from Ben Sachs, a Chicago reader. The Mule, one of the films we'll be reviewing. Thanks so much for checking out Cinephile. Happy New Year, everybody. Hope you had a fantastic holiday season. It's been a few weeks for all of us. Uh, I had a great time on the road in Dallas, New Orleans, Blue Nile, one of the great jazz clubs in all of America. Second straight year, bringing in the house down there. Met a few Cinephile fans along the way. It was nice. Shouting out uh, Griffin, I think it was. Would have been Griffith. Met him in New Orleans. He's like, hey, dude, Cinephile. By the way, if I'm walking and someone just yells at my name, I'm generally just going to keep walking. I'm like, hey, kind of wave. As soon as they go, Cinephile, I stop at a dime. I'm like, let's talk movies. Like, hey, what do you think of In Defense of? Give me some feedback. What do you think of Everyman? So, honestly, I'm not. Then San Jose, I actually met a guy. He was like, listen, I want to get a picture. I'll go, okay. And then he's like, I want to talk Cinephile. I have some ideas for the podcast. So, listen, I, I was, I'm as surprised as anybody. Cinephile fans are everywhere. So you're like walking in Dallas. You're in Dealey Plaza. There's exes on the street. You're on the grassy knoll, and people are like, "Hey, yeah, first reformed, awful movie, right?" <laughs> Dud of the year. I heard Dan Stanzik's working on a deal with Milk Duds. I'm like, "Yeah, Dealey Plaza." We'll get into that in a second. I gotta watch JFK again. When's the last time you watched JFK? Probably five years ago. Oh, Back okay. into the left. Though. Oh, so relatively recent. Okay, I gotta watch it again. That and that Seinfeld episode. I think of both all the time. Uh, as always, check out Cinephile on iTunes. Please uh, give us a review. I rank my movies out of four beliefs. We do those out of Five stars. It's actually very important. Louise Cornetta, our boss, is to meet with me and Dan and Ricky and apparently going to go over Apple Analytics. So seriously, I'm imploring all of you, write reviews right now. Give us five stars. Do what you can because now we're the bosses are on to us, okay? So they're going to start giving us data. So I need all of you to step it up. Uh, Dan, first question of your holiday season. I know your father despises Bad Santa. Was there any, at least coercing, not dad, but at least your brothers? Did you guys watch Bad Santa? There, we did not. You remember it, it ended Stanzik Family Movie Night was the original Bad Santa. <laughs> uh, we did not watch it this year, no. Is there a movie uh, for the six of you that you can all watch together? Is there a staple miracle on 34th Street? Nothing really. We used to, our siblings, we used to play Trivial Pursuit on Christmas morning, and I'm sitting there trying to watch like the NBA, and right. it, it didn't happen this year either. I think we're all getting old. Uh, that's fair. I was about to say, as you get older, you just go, how the hell is your Yeah, everybody's over 30 now, so. Yeah. Here's your tie. Let's move on. Passmore had celebrated his uh, Christmas in middle of December. It's a little bit early for Ricky, but still got it done in Ohio. Yeah, that's generally how it goes. The last eight years have been up here. I fly back a week or two before, and we do it, and it's it's become our tradition. As you told me, um, with regards to movie season and your dentist, you've been grinding. You grind your teeth, you've been grinding with the movie season. So the good news is... Passmore and me and Dan are going to give you our top 10. Shout out to Keith Law. Keith Law is like texting me daily. He's like, have you released your top 10 yet? I'm like, no, we, I've just been on the road. I've been busy. I want to know your top 10. And by the way, Keith's not going to like my top 10 because he, he's been tweeting. He hated Green Book. Uh, I know he liked Burning a lot. I'm sure he I liked I got a Roma. feeling he liked I, I love <laughs> Keith, but he he's the type that would have loved Roma. Absolutely. And before we get launched into reviews, because a few people saw my tweets with the Golden Globes. I mean, like it's an absolute farce. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody winning Best Dramatic Page. I, I can't even say it with a straight face. Not that I care necessarily for Vegas odds, but just to give perspective, 
Vegas because those guys are always smart in the desert. They had it at the worst odds to win Best Picture. Like, what? That's not going to win. A Star is Born was a heavy favorite. Then if Beale Street could talk, then Black Klansman, then Black Panther. No, no, Bohemian Rhapsody won. Which, for those who are wondering why I'd be so appalled, listen, it's a perfectly acceptable music biopic. It's also perfectly disposable and perfectly forgettable. And it should not be winning Best Picture at the Golden Globes. I think Ricky nailed it in his original review. Robbie Malek's fantastic. Again, I don't know if I'd give him Best Actor. I'd give his teeth Best Supporting Actor. I don't know if I'd give him Best Actor. I would have voted for Bradley Cooper or Ethan Hawke, who, of course, was not nominated. Another story. But Robbie Malek wins fine. But Best Picture? Like, are you kidding? That, that's like one of the worst Golden Globe Best Pictures in recent memory. And this is an organization that once nominated The Martian, the Matt Damon space opera, for Best Comedy or Musical. So anybody who says, oh, do the Globes have a real impact? No. The amount of tweets that I got, is Bohemian Rhapsody going to win Best Picture? No. But <laughs> might now have a chance at a nomination, which is staggering enough at the Oscars, if it gets nominated for Best Picture. By the way, Oscar nominations coming up January 22nd, so we'll look ahead to all of that. I'll be the Critics' Choice Awards this Sunday. I believe the favorite is going to do the best of all the films there because the critics love it. Um, so I look forward to that. Critics' Choice Awards, we'll get into that uh, next week, of course, and hopefully I'll have some good stories there as I'll be meeting up with Ben Lyons. Uh, for my plus one, I'm taking Max Bredos, friend of Cinephile. So we're not, they've given us specific instructions. You're not supposed to get, listen, if uh, Vigo Mortensen is at your table, you're not supposed to get a selfie. I'm sure Max will blow by all of those rules. He'll never be invited back again. But I'm one of the critics who will be at the Critics' Choice Awards. I mean, I just hope Charlize Theron is there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, personal yeah. friend of Max Bredos. <laughs> Absolutely. Then the stories will come flying. Lines told me, he goes, so at each table, it's in Santa Monica, Barker, Hanger. I'm flying in Sunday. I'm flying back that night. He goes, at each table, you have a bunch of like film critic schlubs. And he goes, and then you get at least one star per table. So I said, I could have like Mahershala at my table. He's like, yeah. He goes, like, Hearst is your boy. You guys just hang it all night. Or it could be Alfonso Cuaron. And I'm like, yeah, Roma was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so I will definitely have lots of stories about that. I uh, can't wait to talk to a couple of guys, Matt Zoller, Seitz, and Alan Sepinwall. They wrote The Sopranos Sessions. It's the 20th anniversary of The Sopranos. They were actually hosting Sopranos 20 last night. They had a reunion in New York. Matt actually hosted the panel, and Sepinwall was tweeting about it. So I'm sure they'll have good stories from last night. And I read the entire book, 471 pages. It's awesome if you're a Sopranos fans. So we'll ask them all about that. Time now to welcome back to Cinephile for the second time, actor Kevin Hart. Last time we were happy to have him here in studio in Bristol, Connecticut. Today he's busy promoting his new film, The Upside, which is in theaters today. I've seen it and really enjoyed it. Kevin, first and foremost, it's a remake, which I didn't realize until after I'd seen the film. Did you watch the original first, or you want to just focus on this script and this film from Neil Berger? Uh, no, I, I was very aware of the first film. After, of course, getting the, uh, getting the role, I wanted to educate myself on it, so I went and watched it. It was blown away. Amazing movie. Um, and, you know, when reading our script, realizing that we had an opportunity to kind of modernize it and deal with some of the times of the day. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a great opportunity for me. It was one that I jumped at. You're playing a life auxiliary coach to a quadriplegic millionaire who is played by Brian Cranston. It's based on a true story, Kevin. So did you seek out the person upon whom it's based, or did you talk to other life auxiliary coaches to try to get some of the movements down or just what it's like working with somebody who is a quadriplegic? Yes, of course. We had to go and spend a lot of time with uh, with the true life auxiliary and just kind of get an understanding of the job and, and how much went into the job. And I think the the best thing about it was just having a high level of respect for the um, the individuals that do it for a living. You know, because a lot goes into it. And I think being there 
for the the patient that you're dealing with, the quadriplegic individual that you're dealing with, is what's most amazing because they're there on a personal level and a personable level. You know, they're they're keeping those spirits high and they're devoting all the time out their day to make sure that someone has every and anything that they need. I think it's an amazing position. Yeah, the best part of this film is you really get to show off your dramatic chops. You're playing a former inmate who's trying to reconcile with his son. Uh, he's dealing with an estranged marriage. He's got to deal with child support, which he's been negligent on. Was that the primary appeal for you, Kevin, to do a movie where, listen, there's definitely some humor in there, and you got a great uh, chemistry of Brian Cranston, but you really get to show your dramatic chops this time. Of course. You know, I think I think that right now the the best thing in the world for me is saying I'm evolving in, in my craft. And, you know, to show that, to put that on display for my fan base to see and, and understand, um, it, it's a must. So to take that first step into the dramatic world of acting is something that I, I, I welcome. And I think, like I said, this would be the first of many more, you know. That's awesome news. Brian Cranston is one of my favorite actors. I'm sure you're a huge fan of his as well. You guys have real genuine chemistry in this film. That's the kind of stuff you can't fake. I'm sure off screen you've got some stories as well. What was it like working with Brian? Uh, Brian Cranston is the best actor pound for pound I've ever worked with. He's, he's unreal. You know, I mean, the guy is, he, he is truly a thespian. I mean, the man, you know, you're talking about the father from Malcolm in the Middle that's went on to do, uh, so many other things and it's tapped into so many different, um, other personalities and characters just that you, you couldn't even see or believe that he would be able to do from where he came from. So to, to watch him, um, embrace work at the level that he does is definitely a treat. It's something that I think is the dopest thing ever to get to say that I, I worked with him personally. I got to, I got to work with Brian Cranston and Nicole Kidman and I, I, I was, I was toe in toe with him. And I think that my game was elevated because of their, their background and because of how prepared they were and how much I, 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 I put so much pressure on myself coming into it because I didn't want to be unprepared. I wanted to make sure that I was well versed and, and well prepped so, so that I was never the problem or, or ever the delay. And I think it just made for great days on set. Well, I think you acquitted yourself well. You definitely hung in there with them and showed that you're acting chops. Was Cranston a method actor? Was he walking around on set? Or was he trying to really kind of um, inform playing a quadriplegic and do that as true to life as possible? Say it again. Say the last part again. Was he being a method actor? Like, was he trying to, as if channel being a quadriplegic all the time? Yeah. Opera? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He he really he really tried. Well, I won't even say try. He did. You know, um, Brian said the whole time that you know he just wanted to relax as much as possible and not be tense and literally only use his face. And and you know he shut his body down, man. I mean, you know, I was moving him in and out of that chair. He wasn't helping. It, it was it was me. He was giving me dead weight every single time. There was not a there was not one moment where he was portraying Phil that that he tried to you know uh, I guess you could say use his limbs uh, at moments where he possibly could have to help me in certain times in certain scenes. Getting in and out of the bed, taking him in and out of that chair, putting him in the car. That's all stuff that he literally put on me. He made sure that I was doing it. He wouldn't help me. 
Oh, that's amazing, man. I love the fact he was that committed. You mentioned Nicole Kidman. You guys have a really good chemistry, too. A fun refrain about baseball. She says you got three strikes, and the one time she gives you a strike, and you say, come on, that's a check swing. And later on, you and Brian are talking about how much money he has, the character, Phil, and you say, could you buy the Yankees? He says, no. And you say, what about the Mets? He goes, oh, yeah, the Mets, no problem. Well, <laughs> as, a, as, as a sports fan, did you add that joke, or is that actually the script? Because I know you're a big that was actually That was actually well written in the script. That was in the script. Yeah. That was in the script, and I think it was uh, one, of, one of my favorite lines because it's something that, I mean, it still shows how much money he has, but it was just a shot, you know, <laughs> two different baseball franchises, which I thought was really funny. Yeah, I laughed hard at that one. Also, there's a lot of great opera in the film, Kevin, and it, it's I will say this. It's major pieces of opera. I don't know much about opera, but it, it is the opera that somebody might know as far as the major songs. I think one time you even ask, you're, you're pretending to be a conductor, and you're saying, play the aria, the uh, the Queen of the Night. Did this movie deepen your appreciation for opera music? I mean, for me, you know what? I I I'm not a opera fan, so so. It made me respect it because we had to use so much of it, and in using it, of course, you ask questions and then you go search to get the knowledge. And I wasn't aware of Aretha Franklin's participation um, in opera and what she did um, with with uh, the the song. Uh, what is it? Is it Norm, Norman Dorman? What is it? Yeah, What's yeah. The song? It, it played at the end. You're right. Where the Queen actually sings opera. I don't know the name. Yeah, of where, she, where, she, where she sang it and just the story behind why she had to sing it, uh, how much time she had to prep for it. Um, you know, it was like wow, and and I was blown away by it. And then just uh, some of the artists that we met on set that came in for the scene where Phil did the party at the house, and they were singing opera. I mean, it was it was it was something to see. It was really a sight for us. A lot of nice cars that Philip owns, and you get to drive a few of those. Which one was your favorite car to drive? Please don't tell me there's a stunt driver. They like Kevin Hart driving. No, nice that was cars. me. Awesome. That was me. I was definitely driving that Ferrari. That was me. <laughs> yeah, which was the nicest car? The Ferrari? The Ferrari. The Ferrari was a lot of fun. And what type of Ferrari, to be specific? We have a lot of car fans here. I just want to make sure I got the right one. Well, that was a 499, I believe. Okay. That was a 499. That's getting it done, man. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just thinking about, I love that episode you did with Seinfeld. You did the comedians in cars getting coffee. Because that, I just, when I think of cars and you and comedy, it all kind of blends together. Um, You know what, man? It's one of the best times that I've ever had talking to Jerry in that car. We had a great time. Yeah, it's so natural, and you can tell the genuine chemistry of you guys. And when I think about, obviously, you become such a huge star now with acting. And this, like I said, check out the upside, people, because this is a different side of Kevin Hart. But your comedy is so good. Like, stand-up, I have such respect for stand-ups. I think it's so hard to do, and the craft with which you did it, and the years you put into it. You know what I mean? People don't realize how many years you did this. It was an overnight sensation. And guys like you and Jerry and Chris Rock, and and there's so many out there. Do you think stand-up is harder now, though, like with just – the amount of social media and people who are willing to criticize you guys. and It's, it's become a PC environment. And I'm just thinking, Kevin, back in the day, listen, Richard Pryor, George Carlin, those guys were saying stuff that was offensive to people, too. That was kind of like why you went to the comedy club, because you could laugh at stuff and you enjoy stuff. I feel like it's different now. How do you approach it? You know what? I think that, of course, it is It is different. You know, I mean, it's different because of, uh, I guess you could say, the, 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 the heightened sensitivity that we're that we're all embracing today. You know, you forget that comedians, comedians are the people who say what you think. You know, a lot of people think about saying stuff, but they never will. Comedians are the people that are bold enough to say it and try to say it through a a lens that would allow you to look at something and joke at it. And sometimes that stuff can come off distasteful. Sometimes it can come off um, distasteful. 
disrespectful, um, you know, uh, aggressive. And if that if that is or was the case back then, people would just go, that's not for me, and they wouldn't watch that comic. Um, today you're seeing people stand and speak out um, on on a comedian's approach to what they think is funny. Granted, that's the gamble of comedy. You're, you're gambling all the time. It's, I think that this joke would be funny. And there's a chance that joke may not be funny. If it isn't, you go back to the drawing board and you try to figure out the funny version of a joke. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. It's that simple. Um, you look at where comedy has come from and then you look at where it's going. You have to ask yourself, what what is okay? Because now you're you're putting comedy in a place to just be picked apart and poked at. And if that is the case, you'll see that you're you're ultimately putting yourself in a lose lose situation as a supporter of comedy. Because after picking it apart, then it'll come off that man, these guys are soft and they're not even talking about anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, it's it's just it's one thing that you that you really have to look at. It's a, it's a crazy line that we're towing. And I mean, for me, it'll never affect me because my style of comedy is is based on me, my life, my experiences. So I'm forever going to talk about them, and I'm always going to talk about it through the through the perception that I've lived it. Um, so. I don't. I don't have to be malicious or disrespectful, and you know I've shown that uh, in my style of comedy over the past decade. Yeah, and I think that's the key, man. Like in the past, you could just say, "Well, it's funny. I'm just trying to be entertaining," and now you got to go, "Well, how many people am I offending? What what vein is this yeah. going to receive by?" And I, I think that would be incredibly frustrating if I was a stand-up. My buddy and I went to the comedy store in LA recently, and we were dying at this one guy. And part of what was so funny, and by the way, Bill Burr showed up out of nowhere. He was amazing. Is because it's offensive because you're allowed. It's like a safe space. You can laugh at stuff here, and that doesn't mean that I agree with what's being said. It doesn't mean I support it. It's just funny. You know what I mean? In that yeah. moment, I'm going there to laugh. That's it. Well, it's easy to look into something very, very deep. It's easy to overthink something and and look past the simplicity behind it. Ultimately, a joke is said with the intent to simply make you laugh, not to hurt, not to affect. That's the intent behind it. And like I said, sometimes you can get it wrong. Sometimes you can just not not be funny, which yeah. is fine. Because <laughs> if that's the case, you just got to figure it out and move on. No, it's it's a, that simple. Well, you are often much, much more funny than not funny. I got to ask, as an ESPN broadcaster, and somebody who's a big fan of your work, I know you're always at the NBA Celebrity All-Star Game, but here's what I ask you. I always do play-by-play for celebrity softball, which we always have on ESPN. So, like, in the last few years, you know, Miles Teller has played in it, J.K. Simmons, Jamie Foxx has done it the last few years. What's it going to take for you, Kevin Hart, to play in a little bit of celebrity softball? What's it going to play? Oh, man. You know what? I, there's been talk about me doing 10 days with some NBA teams because of my success in the celebrity game. You know, they've been major contracts that have been offered to me, but I've turned them down. I'm getting old. You know, I'm not, I'm almost 40 years old. My knees aren't as strong as they used to be. I mean, my jump shot is definitely still lethal and talked about worldwide. And, uh, of course, you know, talks of me being one of the best point guards to ever do it. Wow. Still talked about. Uh, but, you know, it's something where I've said, hey, maybe it's just time to hang it up, man, and not go back. I don't want to mess up my legacy. I built a great one. Well, listen, I think you've proven that with basketball, but how about baseball? Like, I want to see if you can take Jenny Finch deep. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to be able to see if you can do that in a baseball. You know what? Now, baseball is a different story. Now, you put me out there. Now, we're talking. 
now now I may send a couple over the fence. There's, there's a chance of that. All right, that's good news. You know what, Terry Crews, you know how what an athlete Terry Crews is. He struck mm-hmm. out, Kevin, in celebrity softball. So I'm not I'm not saying it's it's easier or harder than you think, but Terry Crews struck out. I know that wouldn't happen to you. I know you'd go yeah, deep. No, it's not it's not happening to me. <laughs> we're two different we're two different levels of athletes. I'm the real deal. <laughs> Lastly, I know you've talked about it ad, ad nauseum and we're not gonna get into this stuff with the Oscars. I know that you're not gonna host it. You've spoken more than enough about it. What I do want to know is this. Would you be open to hosting award shows in the future, whatever they may be? Do you, does that appeal to you at all? I mean, you know, I, uh, I, I, I can't say no. You know, there's definitely a chance that, that that could happen. It just it comes in time, and when the time makes sense, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll step up to whatever occasion fits with, with the need at the time. You know, but it's just, it's just embracing that moment when that moment comes. The reason why is I'd love to have you host the ESPYs. What do you think? Huge Philly guy, oh, man. right? Sixers, well, you know, Eagles. I'm a big sports fan. You know, I'm a big sports fan, so I, I definitely will say uh, never say never. The SBs is always a, a, a fun watch, so to be a part of it could be dope. You know, like I said, it's just all about the timing. Where are you going to be watching Eagle Saints this Sunday? Philly going to shock oh the Oh, my world. God. When I tell you I'm so excited, in my room with a uniform on. That's why I'm watching the game. <laughs> and Nick Foles' jersey? Or, uniform yeah. on. Yeah. Fletcher Cox uniform. Tell me what jersey are you wearing? Cunningham? I'm going to go. I go Cunningham. I go back in the day. I love it, man. That's awesome. Back in the day. Fly, Eagles, fly. Oh, I love Randall Cunningham. Love the Eagles. Love your work. The Upside is in theaters. Make sure you check out Kevin Hart's terrific new movie. It's got a lot of funny moments, but a lot of drama as well. Brian Cranston, Nicole Kidman. Check it out now. Kevin, thanks so much for coming on Cinephile, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you. Let's do some reviews, shall we? First off, The Mule, the story of an old man becoming a drug mule to help out his granddaughter. It's effortless filmmaking from Clint Eastwood. There's something to be said for a guy who's 88 years old and acting and directing this film, and it's always a joy to see him up there. Although I do have to wonder, playing another octogenarian racist who has a troubled family life, is he just playing himself at this point, or is there something more to this? Uh, Having said that, he's easy to go down. Uh, He's got plenty of good half a dozen one-liners. My biggest uh, issue is the final 30 minutes where it gets awfully hackneyed. If you've seen it, You're a Late Bloomer is a line that is sure to elicit groans, as it did for me. And the Stanley Tucci rule, not nearly enough Andy Garcia, okay? If you're wanting Andy Garcia in the movie, let's go. Like, I love Andy Garcia. And Ricky said in his review, he's like, he's great. He's not in it much. I'm like, are you kidding? It's Andy Garcia. Also, my big issue with Passmore, there's zero Sinatra in the movie. I love Sinatra. I'm waiting for Clint to start singing Sinatra. It is Dean Martin kicking the head who he is singing. So oh, my bad. I can't, I'm like, when's he going to sing Sinatra? Like, it was a very good year. Let's go. Rat pack. I mean. <laughs> it is part of the Rat Pack era. I'll give it to an half Maple Leafs. If you like Clint Eastwood, you should definitely check it out. And if you don't like him, probably a miss for you. But it was uh, perfectly digestible. The Wife from director Bjorn Rung. I don't like to watch movies on uh, flights, as you guys know, since I'm a an elitist snob when it comes to that. I was primarily reading the Soprano Sessions book, but I had to take advantage. I think it was New Orleans to uh, San Jose. And they had The Wife. I go, great. I got to knock this out. 100 minutes. Joe is a Nobel Prize winner, played by Jonathan Price. Joan is the dutiful wife who accompanies him to the Nobel Prize ceremony, but the film reveals secrets that she has to conceal throughout her life, mainly the fact that she was probably a lot more responsible for her husband's success beyond just being a supportive wife. And Christian Slater plays the intrepid journalist. I have not watched iRobot. I'm aware of the fact he's made a comeback there, but I thought Slater was very good in a small role. Having said that, it has a predictable, laughable ending. Although Close is fantastic. She's a woman who has been shut out all the noise for her career and now finally needs to let loose. And you finally get one of those good, you know, Oscar-type winning scenes at the end where she tells Joe she's had enough. But I'm going to give it two Maple Leafs. By the way, Keith Law in texting me 
I think he saw 40 movies this year. So he goes, he had the wife at number 40. I go, that is your worst picture of the year. He said, yeah, I don't know exactly why he has such contempt for it. Maybe he just found the story too cliched, but he hated it. Good news for Glenn Close. She either wins her first Oscar, assuming she gets nominated, or she sets the record for most nominations without winning an Oscar. So she's a winner no matter what. (laughs) She's 0 for 6 right now. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so she's going to get her seventh Oscar nomination. That's crazy. Uh, and you're right. That Globe win, I think, makes things a little bit interesting. Although the movie, I don't I don't think many people have seen the film. So I don't know if enough Academy members are going to go, yeah, the wife is really good. Or just, hey, I love Glenn Close. She's never won before. I'll vote for her. And I don't want Lady Gaga to win an Oscar. So take that. And Olivia Coleman, hey, enough with the Brits. Let's go with Close. Next up, Hate You Give from African-American director George Tillman Jr. It's about a young teen living in a poor, mostly black neighborhood where she is, lives and the wealthy, mostly white prep school that she attends. She then witnesses a fatal shooting of her childhood best friend by a police officer, and then Star Carter decides to stand up. Amanda Stenberg is fantastic. She's actually up for a Critics' Choice Award for Best uh, Breakthrough Actor. She's really good in the movie. It's a black female empowerment film. It's a social justice film, and I think it's great for uh, you know young adult audiences. So I'm going to give the Hey You Give Three Maple Leafs. If it's within that um, construct, I think it works very well. Another one for you, watch in San Jose. Cool little theater in Palo Alto. They had two movies showing, Mary Queen of Scots and At Eternity's Gate, which I had to see, for my boy Willem Dafoe. It's directed by Julian Schnabel. It's a movie about a painter, directed by a painter. Uh, he also made that film Diving Bell and the Butterfly. I'm not sure how many have seen it back in 2007. It's gorgeously rendered, but very depressing. It's uh, kind of like what Ben Lyons said about Silence, a great movie that you never want to watch again. That's how I felt about Diving Bell and the Butterfly. He also did Basquiat, which is a good movie back in uh, the mid-'90s. It's a very artistic film, beautifully photographed and innovative. Defoe is playing Vincent Van Gogh in his final days, and I like the structure of it. The distorted lenses uh, meant to reflect his mental deterioration, and it's honestly a very sad film. There's so many of these painters, like Van Gogh was destitute. He was desperate for companionship, and yet he's one of these guys who was incredibly prolific. Like This was the last three months of his life. He cranked out like 75 paintings over that span. Like This guy's unbelievable, and yet somehow still didn't have a penny to his name. Uh, but Defoe proves why he's one of the great chameleons among leading men. You know, he showcases his craft. Schnabel, the director, is a painter, so he taught Willem Defoe the basics of painting, and I think that's perfectly believable as he's working the brush strokes. Um, it's not exactly, you know, Ed Harris's Pollock, which is another movie I love, but I thought there was good humor and uh, memorable musical score as well. So I'm giving At Eternity's Gate three Maple Leafs, obviously very much for art house audiences. Defoe has an outside chance in a Best Actor nomination. He's up for a Critics' Choice for Best Actor, but that's seven nominees. So the Oscars, I think he may get left out, but obviously I love the guy. Boy Erased from director Joel Edgerton. He also stars in the film. Uh, Lucas Hedges plays the son of a Southern preacher who is Russell Crowe and his wife Nicole Kidman, who is sent to gay conversion camp. It's a poignant coming-of-age drama which showcases how devilish these places are that currently exist. Hedges is sincere and a character that you empathize with. What I appreciate the most, they did not demonize the parents. Kidman more quickly comes to answer her son's calls of distress away from the camp. But I thought Crow was very good. He plays a God-fearing man who loves his son but does have trouble reconciling the truth because he's following what the Bible says, which is that his son's lifestyle is unacceptable. Yet, as I said, he does indeed adore his son. So I actually was pleased the fact they did not demonize the parents, uh, although this story clearly sets up the fact that these gay conversion camps are horrific. The fact they even exist primarily in the South is scary. I'll give it two and a half Maple Leafs. Michelle Smallman, a big fan. A simple favor, director Paul Fagg. Stephanie plays a widowed single mother, vlogger in Connecticut, Dan Stanzik favorite, Anna Kendrick. And Emily has a beautiful, successful career, loving family, Adnan Verk favorite, Blake Lively. She was great in The Shallows. 
<laughs> she disappears, but her son is convinced that she's still alive. So Lively is wickedly acidic. She's got a half a dozen really funny lines, very sharp, very vulgar. And Anna Kendrick plays that woefully naive character. But the story, to me, had one too many plot twists, ends up being too ridiculous. I'm going to give it one and a half Maple Leafs. I thought it had some promise and potential, but I said it got so ludicrous by the end, I was rolling my eyes. Uh, Ricky Passmore saw it. Ricky, what you think of A Simple Favor? I thought it was intriguing. Like you said, it, it's it's like three movies trying to be one movie, and it doesn't really know where it fits in. But between Lively and Kendrick, like they just elevate it to that next level where it is entertaining to me. Yeah. Yeah, story-wise, like, it, it tries to be a crime thriller. It tries to be kind of more like a Paul Feig comedy. And then it just tries to be this extremely, like, hardcore suspense film in the final act. Yeah. And the fact that you're bouncing around all these genres, it's you can't really settle into it, and it becomes a mess. But when it comes to Kendrick and Lively just playing off each other and Kendrick's evolution within her character as she yeah. goes from that – kind of waifish, just, eh, you know, Connecticut single mother to kind of a really dominant, sexy, you know, kind of power trippy type of person. It's a very interesting arc to see her take. I think I gave it like two, maybe two and a half just for them. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, like I said, plot wise, it's a mess. Yeah. If you're a fan of the actors, I would echo those sentiments. You should definitely check it out. And lastly, The Sisters Brothers, which is an atmospheric Western from Jacques Odiard. It's 1851 and Charles and Eli's sisters are brothers and assassins. They are played by Joaquin Phoenix and John C. Riley. They also meet up with Jake Gyllenhaal and Riz Ahmed. And it's a Western about character and sibling loyalty, and it's kind of sprawling and revisionist. It's a French director who's kind of making a road movie comedy, kind of like what Rick said about A Simple Favor in terms of mixing different genres. I didn't think it totally worked. I kind of thought it was in search of a point. But I didn't think John C. Riley was very good. He's you know, one of those actors. He's very good. He's in a movie called Stan and Ollie, which I haven't seen yet, which is about the Laurel and Hardy team. I believe he's up for a Golden Globe for that for Best Actor. He was up for musical or comedy. But I did think John C. Riley was notable. Other than that, unless you're a real fan of Westerns, I would skip it. I'm going to give that one to Maple Leafs. So those are your reviews. Two podcasts ago, we had seven movies. Last time was six. There's another seven for you. So clearly, I need to get a life. Now it's time for our top ten movies of the year. So I'm going to fire through my ten. Again, if you are a fan of the podcast, I'm sure you can guess what my list goes. Uh, and then Dan's going to give his, and Rick Passmore as well. And Ben Lyons with the Lions Den is going to pass along his list as well. So, top ten films of 2018. I allow five honorable mentions. You can also do worst of. Ricky told me via text he's not going to do worst of. He's going to do those that just missed the mark. So that sounds to me like an honorable mention category. But regardless, you get five honorable mentions, you get a top ten. And here we go. In Search of Greatness, just for our boy Ben Lines. Excellent documentary, Wayne Gretzky, Jerry Rice, Pele, a trio of great sports figures about what makes them tick. American Meme, Sada Tribeca, again, Ben Lines executive produced. Funny and surprising, Burt Marcus's story about a bunch of people who enjoy 15 seconds of fame. And yes, Rick Passmore and I sat right behind Tommy Lee. Game Night, one of the few successful comedies of the year. Love Jason Bateman, love the chemistry between him and Rachel McAdams. I think you always need at least one comedy in your list, so I got Game Night in there. The Insult. I needed to have a foreign film in there. I thought I would have Roma, but it's not going to be that one. The Insult uh, is about uh, religious tensions flaring in this Lebanese courtroom drama. I thought it was well executed by all. And A Quiet Place. Really wanted to sneak it on here. It's a horror movie with heart. I think it does signal the arrival of a major filmmaker in John Krasinski beyond just being a very good actor and good performance also from his wife, Emily Blunt, as well. Should be noted, if I was including TV movies as well, I would include Gary Shandling, the great documentary that Judd Apatow made about him, and the Robin Williams documentary as well. I'm excluding those because those are our TV. 
Number 10, If Beale Street Could Talk, ravishingly beautiful from the artist that is Barry Jenkins, clear-eyed portrait of criminal injustice while being soulfully, achingly romantic. Number 9 is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, thrilling and audacious, a head trip as well as a joy that will get your spidey senses tingling. Big upset. My brother saw it but didn't love it. He said, I thought it was pretty good. I'm like, are you kidding? This should be your favorite movie of the century. He was like, well, it was pretty good. A little confusing at times, jumping around all the place. Pretty solid. He, he, a very understated reaction from him. I know. Dan stands right now. Eyes are bulging. Number 8 is Private Life. Poignant drama from indie filmmaker Tamara Jenkins featuring Catherine Hahn and the great Paul Giamatti. It's smartly observed, it's moving, cringeworthy humor, and an ending that is pure perfection. Number seven is Can You Ever Forgive Me? The best buddy tandem of the year. Melissa McCarthy playing the miserable writer Lee Israel and bon vivant Richard E. Grant entering into a union of criminality and deception. A period piece of old New York. At times it's nasty, but the characters are always endearing. Number six is First Man. Another title could have been Forgotten Man. Damien Chazelle's dazzling space opus has been ignored by most underwhelmed at the box office, but is a technical marvel while also featuring intimate interior performances from Ryan Gosling and Claire Foy. Number five is Green Book. Sure, it's predictable and sanitized, but also undeniably uplifting and heartwarming. Tony Vallelonga and Don Shirley, embodied by Viggo Mortensen and the magnetic Mahershala Ali. Props to Pete Fairley, the director going against type after making all those great comedies, along with his brother Bobby. Uh, next up, we got number four is Vice, a scathing satire from Adam McKay, who gave us the big short, rip-roaring performances from an all-star cast, has a very definitive point of view, and it is, like I said, scandalous and scathing. Number three, got to get one documentary on there. It's The Love Me When I'm Dead, a rousing celebration of a true auteur, cinematic giant Orson Welles. Morgan Neville may win an Oscar for the fact he directed the Mr. Rogers documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? But I thought this was his best work of the year. It's playful, mischievous, and profound, chock full of anecdotes that cinephiles will devour from those who knew and loved Orson like no other. He was grandiose and verbose. Number two is First Reform, Paul Schrader special, Man on the Edge of Madness, Driven by Obsession. A clear homage to Diary of a Country Priest from Robert Bresson, has evocative narration, stark direction, beautifully shot, and Ethan Hawke is, in keeping with the religious theme, a revelation. And number one is Black Klansman, a thrilling return to form for Spike Lee. Six words, as he said, when Jordan Peele had to ask him to make the film, Black man infiltrates KKK. It's funny and furious, and it's a Spike Lee specialty. Also has an incendiary ending. Those are my top ten films of the year. And let's give the worst before Dan Sanzik gives his best and worst. <laughs> Disobedience from Rachel Weisz and Rachel McAdams. It's pointless and tedious. Sorry to bother you. Well, an apology will be more than that. Howlingly unfunny, a giant mess, absurd, and trying way too hard. Ballad of Buster Scruggs, a colossal waste of the Coen Brothers' talent. And mid-90s. Utterly contemptible characters. It's based apparently on Jonah Hill's childhood. If that's the case, I feel sorry for your upbringing, Jonah Hill. Whoa. <laughs> what do we got, Danny? All right. I mean, some of the movies I have are the same. Yours are a lot tighter than mine, so I'll try to tighten them up as we go. <laughs> uh, first, podcast. you see a lot more movies than I do, obviously. So the first, the ones that I haven't seen, so I couldn't even consider them. I want to see these movies. They obviously won't be in the top ten. Haven't seen The Favorite, Bohemian Rhapsody, If Beale Street Could Talk, or Free Solo, which I feel like I would like, which is yeah. weird. Uh, I know Shell, you talked to uh, Alex Holland, or Honnold, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, Connor Shell, one of our top executives here, of course, he was part of the team that won the documentary for ESPN about OJ. OJ, right. I said, favorite documentary of the year. First thing I asked him. 
And I, he paused. I go, Mr. Rogers. He goes, I wasn't crazy about it. I go, see, I told you. He goes, free solo. He goes, I think that's the best documentary of the year. Look at you meeting with the top execs. Yeah, know, wow. All around. right. We got to send him the Alex Honnold now. I guess so. <laughs> number 10, moving right along. Moving on. Number 10, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. As David Sims of the Atlantic put it, the latest entry in a fully saturated genre that somehow, through sheer creative gumption, does something new. We didn't need another Spider-Man movie by any means, but this animated feature is different while getting back to Spider-Man's roots as a comic book. Loaded cast, Liv Schreiber, Liv Schreiber, Nicholas Cage, Liev, ooh, uh, Mahershala Ali, Haley Seinfeld, funny and heartwarming. Number nine, Green Book. A reverse driving Miss Daisy road movie based on a true story that explores identity, friendship, and the racial dynamics of the South in the 1960s. Mahershala Ali, two for two there. Vigo Mortensen and Linda Cardellini, my girl, deliver solid performances in this dramedy directed by Peter Farrelly. There are some highly emotional scenes, but other moments that felt over the top. A repeat viewing may vault this film in either direction on the list. I was about to say, you called it campy, so clearly you didn't see enough movies this year. This is a soft number nine. Soft nine. Yeah. That's just friends of the podcast, Vigo Mortensen. <laughs> yeah. And Mahersha Ali getting some love. Number eight, A Quiet Place. If you liked Bird Box, then you'll love A Quiet Place, which is its twin movie, a real term which describes films about similar topics that come out around the same time. Other examples include Rookie of the Year and Little Big League, Showgirls and Striptease, and from this year, Beautiful Boy and Ben is Back. I love this eclectic mix. Number seven, Three Identical Strangers, a documentary from the Truth is Stranger Than Fiction catalog, Three college-age men learn they are triplets who were separated at birth. Their story sweeps the nation, but things turn dark as they investigate the circumstances around their separation. Number six, Black Panther. It's a superb superhero movie that was propelled by tapping into the zeitgeist of America. Michael B. Jordan stands out among a stellar cast as the villain. This film shouldn't win Best Picture, but its cultural resonance makes it worthy of a nomination. Hell, the Academy nearly created a new category based on the heels of its success. Number five, A Star is Born. It's wow. An, it's an overhyped remake that I found to be a little disappointing and underwhelming, but it features incredible performances by its three lead characters, amazing music, and of all the films on this list, it's the one I'd most want to watch again. This is a shocking number five. You called it underwhelming at the time. And a little disappointing. I, I, re- I doubled down on those two terms. You've been swayed by people. Number four, Vice. Although I'm a huge fan, some of director Adam McKay's stylistic choices weren't for me, but this film about former Vice President Dick Cheney successfully blurs the line between biopic, documentary, and satire. The film is informative, humorous, and at times outrageous. Christian Bale once again proves that he is one of the best actors on the earth. Amy Adams demonstrates her ability to skew older and more bitchy, and Steve Carell knocks his portrayal of Donald Rumsfeld out of the park. They should put that blurb on the Amy Adams career. I, honestly, the way I felt is that this is her. She can play older characters. Like we saw her come onto the scene when she was very young and Catch Me If You Can, and now she's skewing way older. It reminded me of. Do you remember Jodie Foster in uh, Inside Man with Denzel? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very bitchy. And Amy Adams has some of this as Cheney's wife. I like it. Number three, Black Klansman, a Spike Lee yes. joint. Film is wildly funny, hard to believe, and unfortunately relevant. Spike lays it on thick at the end, but he's not wrong to do so. Adam Driver and Topher Grace shine in supporting roles. Number two, eighth grade. (laughs) Molly Ringwald, the queen of coming of age films in the 1980s, tweeted that Bo Burnham's film is, quote, the best movie about adolescence I've seen in a long time, maybe ever. 
She's right. It deserves to be in the conversation, and I'm a sucker for films about teenage angst, lest you have forgotten about my crusading for Lady Bird at this time last year. Not only did this movie capture the awkward uneasiness that most of us go through in middle school, it also expertly incorporated the intricacies that social media adds to the mix. Eighth grade is laugh-out-loud funny, heartbreaking, uplifting, cute, timely, and for anyone that's seen it, Gucci! (laughs) Number one. Here we go. First man. Yes. In late December, a senior entertainment writer for Up Rocks tweeted, quote, in five years, everyone will realize First Man is a masterpiece and say stuff like, why didn't this get more awards attention? I am similarly perplexed about why this film hasn't garnered much in the way of awards. Maybe some of it is due to the Republican backlash about how the film doesn't show the planting of the American flag on the moon, but one, that's a ridiculous critique because the film is littered with American flags, including the one on the mil- on the moon. They just don't show the actual planting of it. And two, Hollywood is filled with liberal elites. Either way, I'm in the tank for Chazelle and Gosling. It's a lot easier to portray a dynamic character with vices and flaws than it is to convey internal anguish. And that's what Gosling does in his portrayal of Neil Armstrong. Most people my age know about how the space race ended, but few of us know about the journey, the casualties, the geopolitical pressure, and how history sometimes chooses our heroes. First Man is a story about American exceptionalism that connected with me emotionally and in some ways made me want to have a daughter, and it is the clear best film of 2018. Well done. Well written, as always. Let's go through this. So Spider-Man, Green Book, Quiet Place, Three Identical Strangers, Black Panther, Stars Born, Vice, Black Klansman, Eighth Grade, First Man. Nailed it. You mentioned Bird Box. Uh, Should I see it? I'm aware it's on Netflix. I've heard very mixed reviews. It's not a complete waste of your time. Okay, so if I have a minute... The, you, the ending, you're not going to love, but it's... Uh, Sandra Bullock. Malkovich and Sandra Bullock. Let's talk a little more about Vice. You said you weren't crazy about some of the stylistic choices. What was that? I mean? don't want to give anything away, but there are some things he does. Like, for example, um, when he did The Big Short. Yeah. He's trying to explain complex things in easy ways. Like, he had cutaways. He breaks the fourth wall a lot, which I don't right. like. Okay. He had celebrities, like, explaining stuff. So he does stuff in this movie... It's hard to say things without giving away spoilers. We can talk later. One of my favorite moments of the year is what happens at the 43-minute mark. Rick and I were talking about that. That's one of those that was hilarious. It's the floor. Like, I was, yeah. that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's funny. Joe, Joe Tess told me his daughter got up because I guess that's the movie. Like, the, the credits are going. Like, Devin, who works on Golok and Wingo, said old people were in the theaters and were yeah. furious. They got up and thought it was, yeah. Like, this is a 43-minute movie? Like, are you kidding? Um, what do you think of Corella's Rumsfeld? Awesome. Right? Uncanny. Awesome. Just like him. And Christian Bale does not get enough credit for what he does as an actor. But, yeah, Carell was great. Uh, And eighth grade. So I liked it a lot. We've obviously had Bo Burnham on the pod. Love him. Claire Atkins, big fan of it. Lem hated it. One of my buddies, of course, friend of the podcast. What You loved adolescence angst. I love to see at the end where the dad's talking to her. Remember, we talked to Bo about that. A little surprised you had it that high. There, I, I don't know. Some for some reason that 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 time period connects me. I also forgot to do my uh, you oh, know of, honorable mentions. Yeah. You know, worst of is going to be Roma and the first Reformed. I can't think of three <laughs> others. Apologies too is the way I had it. So oh, you guys do an honorable mentions. Yeah. I'll just rip through them. Avengers: of Infinity War, Pretty. Game Night, Ben is back, Set It Up, and Crazy Rich Asians. I'm glad you gave a shout out to Game Night as well. I got to get a comedy in there. That's one of those old school comedies you can enjoy. What was the third film? Uh, Avengers, I agree, was pretty good. The other? Ben is back. Yeah, I haven't seen it. So you think it's good? Okay, eh, it's okay. Uh, it, it, you know, I other people seen. will connect with it more than I. But okay. emotional. Julia Roberts, Lucas Hedges. Is he? What is going on? Is there no one else that can act at his age? <laughs> he gets every damn. Ro- I mean, I know his father directed that film Correct. specifically, Hedges, but yeah. he's in another one you talked about. Yeah, he was in Boy Race as well. Yeah, Hedges. Is what other actor was dominating at this age like he is? 
Maybe Chalamet. Like Timothy Chalamet's really good. He's a beautiful boy. Um, I guess like 20 years ago, who was Lucas? Oh yeah, Hedges? yeah, yeah. No, you're right. I guess it would be one of those. Uh, maybe one of the, maybe Corey Haim or Corey Feldman, one of those guys. All right, Ben is back in Bird Box. I can add to my list. Rick Passmore. What do we got? So like Ben or like Dan, I haven't seen as many movies as you have. So some of the ones that are up for consideration that I haven't got to yet. A Private War, Can You Ever Forgive Me, First Man, Free Solo. If Beale Street could talk, but I am seeing that on Friday. It gets released here in Plainville, so I will be seeing that. Roma, just haven't got to sit down and watch it yet. Don't waste your time. I'm going (laughs) to. Searching Shoplifters, The Kindergarten Teacher from uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Ben Lyons has that in his top ten. He loves that movie. Charlie's Theron, Jason Reitman. I yeah. missed the boat when it came out in May. Really wanted to see it. So yeah. that's going to be coming back at some point. Tully was on the plane, but I wanted to keep reading the Sopranos book. It was an option. Go ahead. Okay. What was the one? That, give me the third last one you just said. Shoplifters. Yeah. I really want to yeah. see that too. Japanese film. It's probably going to get nominated for best foreign film. I'm sure that's in Keith Law's top 10. Yeah. Shoplifters <laughs> looks really good. Go ahead. All right. And then, so for my honorable mention, in no particular order, I had uh, tweeted it out yesterday, last night. Uh, so you can see the full list there, but the five honorable mentions that just missed the cut. A Star is Born, Hearts Beat Loud, Overlord, Upgrade, and your personal favorite, Mission Impossible Fallout. Apparently one of the best action movies in years. I'll never Tremendous. Watch I, I, the, honest, the honest assessment of it is people laud on Tom Cruise for it. You could take it or leave it. It's just the fact that they do their own stunts. A lot of it is not CG'd or very little wire work. They get the wires out, and it moves. It's almost two and a half hours, and it never feels like it. So it's absolutely tremendously paced and just a ton of fun to watch. Mike Ryan, a big fan of it. Go ahead. All right. My number 10, Thoroughbreds, a gripping and darkly humorous thriller from first-time writer-director Corey Finley, anchored by brilliant performances from Anya Taylor-Joy and Olivia Cook. Well overlooked from its February limited release, I feel it's the best original screenplay this year with notes of Hitchcock meeting millennial upper class. Didn't see it, but I did remember seeing the trailer and go, this is pretty creepy. When I when I finally sat down and watched it in February when it came out, I was pleasantly surprised by how fantastic it was. All right, keep it rolling. Number nine, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Probably the most needed film this year, Morgan Neville's documentary on Mr. Rogers is poetic, profound, and ultimately pensive as the audience is given a look deep inside the man that used television to usher in the thought and hope of goodness for over 40 years, one cardigan at a time. (laughs) Good review. Number eight. Number eight. The Favorite. I was initially taken aback by how grounded this film is given its campaign that made it seem more quirky and absurd than it actually was. But that quickly dissolves thanks to intriguing cinematography, sharp and venomous dialogue from writer-director Yorgos Lathamos, and three dominant performances from Rachel Weisz, Emma Stone, and um, Olivia Coleman. I wrote Olivia Cook in here because it was like 2 a.m. when I was writing this. <laughs> Olivia Coleman, who's probably going to win or be nominated for Best Actress. Yeah. Uh, it's a unique and somewhat true story of Queen Anne and her confidants. Tossing oranges at naked guys. I mean, that's tough to get out of your head. Yeah, that was that was a little that was a little on the on the over the top part of it. Yeah. But uh at the same time I didn't think about that until you just mentioned it just now. For thanks for, so thanks for putting that back in my head. Stephanie's really hated it, by the way. Speaking of one of our executives here. Absolutely hated it. Do you it. meet with all of our bosses? <laughs> I gotta tell you, there was some good schmoozing going on at the field. All right. Number seven, Ricky. Number seven. First reform. Yeah. 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 Let's go. 
Paul Schrader's depressingly genius take on climate change and martyrdom delivers Ethan Hawke's best performance of his career as the bleak and decaying Reverend Toller who unearths secrets about his parish and its ties to a corporate financial backer. Yeah, keep going. Come on, more. I don't care. If you didn't write anything, keep talking. Keep going. First and foremost, how good's the directing? Schrader. Directing is fantastic. I love the use of 4-3, by the way. Especially in 16-9 world, a more anamorphic use. I love the use of square framing right. and the uh, static shots, static shots, and, and how natural lighting, how cramped it feels yes. by using that uh, frame, uh, that aspect ratio. Uh, like I said, Ethan Hawke's fantastic performance of his career. Just it, it's so subdued until it doesn't need to be, and then he just goes for it, <laughs> well over the top. Cedric the Entertainer. Very surprisingly good. Good actor. Cool. Yeah. I agree. Solid as well. Uh, but yeah, like once, once you hit that point when he becomes so obsessed with, and, and I love just the, the back and forth, the juxtaposition of using climate change in his own body decaying and saying, are we too far gone? Great point. The only downside I have, that little CGI moment near the end of the film, way, way, way too much. <laughs> just keep, little artsy. Keep Magical mystery the, tour. Keep, keep doing what you're doing. Didn't need that. You could have just let, again, Run with the static shots. I don't need to have the whole yeah. moment of epiphany using green screen. That probably saved. That probably would have saved you about maybe two hundred fifty thousand dollars right there. Tom Rinaldi loved it. Called it provocative and powerful. But it was a fantastic <laughs> film. I I did purchase the red box of the DVD, and then I found it on Amazon a day later. It was on Amazon Prime streaming. So <laughs> okay. maybe the giveaway in the next episode, my red box purchase of First Reform signed by Adnan Verk. We'll figure <laughs> yeah, yeah, something out. Exactly. All right. Number six. Number six. Eighth grade. Wow. My guy. Bo Burnham's directorial debut hits profoundly not just in the zeitgeist, but also with the immortal fear of puberty and young adulthood. A cringy and tremendous performance from Elise Fisher, or Elsie Fisher, sorry, delivers one of the best coming-of-age films this generation. Wow. Mark Simon's going to be all over this. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Number five, You Were Never Really Here. Chilling and reticent. Joaquin Phoenix's turn as suicidal vet turned mercenary fighting human trafficking showcases some of the best subdued acting I've ever seen. It also helps to have a writer and director as daring as Lynn Ramsey weaving this web, expertly manufacturing a world in which Phoenix's Joe can inhabit without falling into satire. Definitely a challenging film, and I think it's on a lot of critics' top ten lists. And that's one of those, maybe like First Man, you're smelling, go, man, that's a pretty dark yeah. challenge. Also streaming on Amazon right now because, thankfully, it's an Amazon Studios uh, distribution. So you up. can check it out right now. Good. Uh, number four, Vice. One of the most fantastic pieces of mimicry and character camouflage since Gary Oldman's take as Sid Vicious, Chris, <laughs> Christian Bale becomes Dick Cheney through over four decades of his life. Accompanied by a biased yet calculated script from director Adam McKay, Bale, along with Steve Carell's deep dive into Donald Rumsfeld, showcased just how ugly the politics that rule over America are. So, to recap, all of us. We all had it number four. four. Outstanding. All right, so this is where that's the consensus. Go ahead. It's the fourth best movie of the year. No matter what. <laughs> there it is. Proven. Market. Number three. Spider-Man. Into the Spider-Verse. I knew it was going to be high. Initially, I had Wreck-It Ralph 2 as my best animated film of the year. Then I caught the IMAX of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which not only is the best animated film of the year, but it should be the Marvel film campaigning for best picture over Black Panther. A truly amazing interpretation of the tiring superhero subgenre. The film from Bob Persh... Uh, I'm going to butcher this name. Persa Shetty, Peter Ramsey, Rodney Rothman, and written by Rothman and Lego Movies' Phil Lord, transcends the art form of animation by faithfully adapting the medium within the film. 
and a story that will emotionally go toe to toe with most dramas. I knew you'd love it. I like the fact that you uh, tripped over that name because normally when there's like multi collaborators, you go, that's a sign this was not. There's like six screenwriters, like three directors, you go, oh my God. But in this case, it actually worked. They probably just all had different input on it and were able to make something that was so challenging. Yeah, and, and, but that's the thing. You had three directors and two writers, one of the writers, which was one of the directors. And right. especially with animation, you kind of have to have yeah. multiple people overseeing the project because of how much, the, and especially with Spider-Man because of how, how much different each character's artwork was. So you couldn't just, you know, make a Pixar and everything's going to be the same. You had different art forms for Spider-Girl. You had a different art form for Noir Spider-Man for Spider-Ham. Yeah. Everyone looked and moved differently <laughs> within this universe, and especially Miles Morales's universe with uh, with the alternate universe Peter Parker. They looked a little different, and I just I love the fact that they did a lot of um, camera tricks without using special effects. They used it in the artwork, like using depth of field and painting mm. and doing the character design within that. I'm cool. a much bigger fan of that over like trying to force like the layered style of animation that was developed back in the the cell shading and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Run up spot. What do we got? Fantastic. Anyway, number two, Black Klansman. Wow. Spike Lee scorches with this insanely true story about Ron Stallworth, the black detec- detective that infiltrated the KKK in the 1970s. Filled with all the swagger and substance of black exploitation films while entrenching us in one of the most tension-driven films in the last 20 years. While the ending may seem grandiose to some, I felt it was right in place with Spike Lee and his style. Yeah, I didn't think you'd have it this side because I knew you weren't crazy about the ending, the Charlottesville stuff. So I'm surprised but it's Spike Lee. That's it, his deal, and he's doing it. He's doing his thing, and you got to respect him for it. Good call in the homages to black exploitation. Number one. Number one. A quiet place. Wow. The best film of the year and one of the best horror films this generation. What John Krasinski accomplishes in 90 minutes from a script he penned with Brian Woods and Scott Beck is instantly classic. The tremendous use of sound, coupled with outstanding performances from the entire cast, especially his wife Emily Blunt, prove that given the right direction and inspiration, horror can be more than cheap scares and eerie tensions waiting for the next bump. Yeah, I'm astonished you did not have Halloween in your top ten. What happened? Second viewing, it just fell down. It's not even in my honorable mentions full. Um, I'm still going to buy it. It's coming out on Blu-ray soon. I'm still going to purchase it. I still respect it. Uh, but upon the second viewing that I went and saw it in theaters, it just kind of fell off a little bit. It's it's still not the original. What about Suspiria? Luca Guadagnino. So that's uh, funny you should mention that because that's coming up on my five that missed the mark. Okay, go ahead. And in no particular order, Mandy, Hereditary, <laughs> Annihilation, Suspiria, and your personal favorite, Sorry to Bother You. Oh, there we go. All right. So we're good. We have backup on Sorry to Bother You. All of us had Black Klansman. The lowest was Dan had it at three. Ricky had it at two. I had it at one. Uh, a Quiet Place, we all had it on our list. Dan had it at eight. I had it on our mention. Ricky had it at one. Ricky, what was your number nine? Won't you be my neighbor? Okay. So we go with... Thoroughbreds at 10. Won't You Be My Neighbor at 8. Excuse me, 9. 8 is the favorite. 7 is his best one, first reformed. 6 is 8th grade. 5 is You Were Never Really Here. 4 is Vice, Consensus. 3 is Spider-Man, Consensus. Black Landsman, We All Loved, and A Quiet Place. All three of us had three movies, all in the top 10. A Quiet Place, you had an honorable mention, so that one we're kicking it out of here. Vice, we all had four. Spider-Man, The Spider-Verse, and Black Landsman. We all, all three of us had those three movies in the well, top ten. If there's three movies to see, those are the three. Go see those three. Not first reformed. It's trash. <laughs> no, it's awesome. It's on Amazon Prime streaming. Just picture Ronaldo 
provocative, and powerful. And now time for our special guest. Your home is important. That's why GEICO helps make it easy to save on homeowner's insurance. Because home is more than just a place. Home is where you have a cute little reading nook for those rainy days when you want to curl up with a good book, but you don't even read, so you just sit in there during thunderstorms and scroll through memes on your phone and laugh in the darkness. <laughs> the GEICO Insurance Agency could help protect the dark, meme-filled corner you call home. Call GEICO and see how easy it is to switch and save on homeowner's insurance. All right. Hey, this is a real thrill to welcome in Matt zoller Sites and Alan Seppenwall. They have written an incredible book. It's called The Soprano Sessions. It is available now. I devoured all 471 pages. And they just actually read a panel last night, Sopranos 20, which Matt was hosting and Alan was tweeting about. So I've got a ton to ask about the series and the book. But thanks so much, fellas, for coming on Cinephile. Matt, I know last night must have been a real thrill and tough to navigate. But was there a big takeaway? A guy, both of you guys are so invested in the show. Was there something you actually gleamed last night that you did not know? until last night oh there was a lot of stuff but you know the the main thing was just how invested everybody was in in the friendships that they formed when they were on the show which is something you know i think probably happens with every television series uh to some degree but it seemed especially intense in this case you know these are people who 20 even 15 20 years after they were on the show together they still hang out Amazing to see. And Alan, I love it. I retweeted the picture you sent of uh, Silvio and Pauly. I mean, it's amazing to see Stephen Van Sant and Tony Sirico together again, one of the great uh, duos of modern television. Tony Sirico is always on. You know, it was just hilarious, you know, watching him you know, talk back to Matt, talk, you know, hassle the other people on the panel. He is he's one of the funny characters in TV history and one of the funny actors in real life. Yeah, well, I want, later on I want to talk about the funniest lines of the show, and I feel like Polly's got a handful of those. But The Soprano Sessions is available now. Uh, just to give you a background on me, fellas, I watched it when I was in college. I grew up in Canada, so we did not have HBO. We didn't have TMN, the movie network. And in colleges, I'm sure you guys can relate, didn't have much money. But the, the cacophony of noise about this show was so strong. When the New York Times said it's the greatest pop culture of in the last 25 years, me and my roommate had to scrounge together and watch the show. And the first episode I ever saw, you guys will laugh, is Funhouse. I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> But I I thought it was brilliant, in particular that montage at the end, the Rolling Stones through and through, and Gandolfini smoking that cigar. I said, okay, clearly there's something going on here. i got to watch this entire show beyond just the fact uh, Tony's got bad Indian food mixed with the fact he sniffed at a rat. But, Matt, I'll start with you. Can you give context for those, just what a pop culture phenomenon it was? You guys worked for the New York Star-Ledger. You're seeing this show in your own backyard. What was it like? This predates Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones and so many great shows. What was it like when The Sopranos hit? Well, it was huge. It was huge. And, you know, the thing that everybody forgets now, and in retrospect, I think everybody everybody has convinced themselves that that it was big from the start and everybody was 100% on board with everything the show was doing. But, you know, it came out of nowhere, and the best-known person in the cast was probably Lorraine Bracco because she'd been nominated for an Oscar for Goodfellas. And um, a lot of people last night on the panel, and I certainly feel the same way, uh, they looked at the title and thought it was about opera singers. They had. They really didn't know what this thing was, and 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 even once they found out that it was about um, the mafia, they didn't. They didn't necessarily know that it was about not the New York mob, but the New Jersey mob, <laughs> which had an inferiority complex compared to the New York mob, and that also there was psychiatry, social satire, family relations, and all kinds of other things mixed into it, including dream sequences. And Alan, for you, I mean, it predated so many of these great shows we see now, right? Like, I laugh. People tell me how good some of these shows are. I'm like, are you kidding? The antihero began with Gandolfini, and I. Listen, I agree with you. When you look at the trifecta of great dramatic performances, 
you know, if you look at uh, uh, John Hamm as Don Draper and Brian Cranston as Walter White, Gandolfini was as special as any of them. He towers above them all, in my opinion. I mean, it's weird because I remember in the years since the show ended, I'm writing a ton about Mad Men, I'm writing a ton about Breaking Bad, about all these other shows, and it became very easy to just sort of look at it as, oh, there's you know the TV drama Mount Rushmore, and those three guys are on it, and maybe Claire Danes or Elizabeth Moss or somebody else is the fourth head. Um, but then we went back and we had to rewatch the show to write this book, and I was struck again and again by just how special, even by recent standards, Gandolfini was. Like, he gets his own mountain, and everybody else has to fight for second place. There's a couple of moments that I just... And by the way, my wife had never seen it, so we, we watched it from, like, Labor Day to Thanksgiving. We just powered through it. It was perfect timing with the 20th anniversary, and then I got to read your guy's book, which I cannot recommend enough, because what Alan and, and Matt did is they went through every episode. It's so dense. The footnotes are so good. Uh, they're not only knowledgeable, but very funny as well. And so... <laughs> When, I, when I'm watching Gandolfini again, the whole show, one of, the, one of the, my least favorite episodes and my least favorite season is season four. I agree with you guys. It's the rare show that ended better than ever. Season six, part two, or as David Chase would say, season seven. You cannot miss a beat of that. It's incredible. And I did love season five a lot because I love Robert Lozier and Buscemi so much. Season four to me was what the weakest, but it did have on one of the weaker episodes, probably my favorite Gandolfini moment. And that is... After he listens to that great song, Oh Child, by the Shy Lights or the Child, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but he then goes and belt whips Zelman. And I love that you guys pointed out in the book that Casablanca reference. So smart by you guys. The fact that, you know, Bogey said of all the gin joints, all the places she walks into mine, and after Gandolfini just humiliates this guy, you know, of all the girls you had to pick out Irina. And then I think about a scene like that. He's so vicious. He reads, he treats vulnerability with brutality. And then I think about true vulnerability. And the scene where AJ tries to kill himself and the way that Gandolfini reacts, like, what's wrong with you? Like, he's just so angry and frustrated. And then the way he says, I got you, baby. I got you, baby. Like, it brings tears to my eyes. Matt, we'll talk about the person, James Gandolfini, in a second. But just those moments to me are so special, weren't they? Yeah, they were. And, and it's the it's the tenderness and the humanity of those characters that saves them from being completely loathsome, which was always a risk. And in fact, sometimes consciously something that they were going for. And, you know, the attraction repulsion mechanism on this show was really quite remarkable. And, uh, and you know, it was I think it was incarnated mostly through the character of Melfi, who was studying Tony and by extension his world in this kind of detached clinical way. But but there were times when she was attracted to it and attracted to him. And that and that was kind of exciting, but also disgusting to her because of her own moral code. And, and I think as the show went on, I think it became increasingly hard for her to disentangle herself from from her emotional investment and and she really stands in for the viewer in a lot of ways and of course we get to the end and it's like she closes the book on this guy like she's got to kick him out of her life she's had enough and and i think you know i don't think it's a coincidence that that happens pretty much at the tail end of the entire 86 episode saga yeah as despicable as the guy is alan i'm generally rooting for him part of it's just the charm that i love Gandolfini as an actor and i think he's really funny i think you guys really point out the fact that this is one of the reasons you like sylvia is she's funny the same thing with Polly. even though these guys are despicable people you know humor goes a long way but Gandolfini, the moment that I said, okay, I'm done with him, is when he killed Christopher, because I just love Imperioli so much, and Christopher is my favorite character. What was your reaction to that episode specifically? Because you guys explained perfectly what he means when he says, I get it. When he kills Chris, did you have the same feeling as me that said, listen, I've rooted for a lot of stuff here, Tony, but you can't kill your nephew like that. It's really, it's very shocking that he does it, but it's also, you know, as Chase talks about in the, the long series of interviews we did with him for the book, it was way overdue. Like, Christopher had been very 
badly behaved for a long time with the insubordination and the drug addiction and everything else by the standards by which the, the mob conducts itself. Um, so it, it was more like they kept him around because people like you and everybody else loved that character, and, he, and Michael Imperioli was so good. But when he's standing there in the gulch and he leans in and he realizes, I can just kill him by pinching his nose closed, and he does it, uh, it's, it, I shudder thinking about it right now talking to you. Yeah, it's so memorable the way he does it. Uh, Matt, you obviously knew Jim very well, as you do now, in the interviews and stuff. And I love the fact you included some of your work from the New York Star-Ledger, in particular your eulogy for Gandolfini. This is a guy who was uncomfortable with the spotlight, uh, had a troubled personal life, issues with booze and drugs. And, um, uh, you know, unfortunately, I'm glad you guys didn't include it because I don't think it's it's uh, germane to the show. But there are stories in the tabloids. He held up the crew and, you know, shooting and stuff because he was out on a bender, et cetera. But very generous to actors, and in particular, I was struck by the fact he sent you a handwritten note after your wife passed away and his reaction to when he would see you in those interactions. Tell us a little bit about Jim Gandolfini, the human being. Well, he, you know, the, the first thing I can tell you is that in the uh, almost 30 years that I've been writing about film and television, he's the only actor who's ever begged me not to interview him. That I mean, story he called, he called the house, you know, this is before the show was even on the air. And he's the main character on a, on a, on an HBO show, a guy who had been kind of toiling in the, in the margins of other people's ensembles for, for years. This is his big break. And HBO set up an interview with the star ledger and I was going to do a profile of him. And a few days before at the phone rings and uh, my wife picks it up and uh, spends several minutes on the phone. And then finally she covers the receiver and turns to me and says, it's James and I said, what the does he want? You know, and, and he got on the phone with me and he said, Matt, I, I just been thinking about it. And I don't think I should be doing this interview. Who cares what an actor has to say? It just seems very silly to me. And I had to talk him into to, to doing the interview with me. And it turns out, I believe that mine was one of maybe two solo interviews that he did during the entire eight year run of the show. Like he would appear on stage as part of an ensemble or in a group type setting, but he didn't do one on ones. And he and I think he really was legitimately shy. Like, I think there are a lot of people in the spotlight who say, oh, I have social anxiety or I'm a shy person and it's not true. But I think in his case, it was true. I don't know if you feel that way, Alan. Oh, no, totally. I've witnessed times, you know, we, we were at an awards event that he didn't realize was kind of a working press event, too. And so he just shows up. He's in a good mood. The Sopranos is gonna, about to get honored. And suddenly, like, three dozen reporters you know, surround him with tape recorders, and he looked like he wanted to chew his leg off to escape. <laughs> <laughs> That's genuine. Uh, some of the personal episodes that I love, and I know you guys have favorites as well, but I want you just indulge me on these four specifically, and I want just tastes on, you know, personal elements of this that you liked or et cetera. I think long-term parking, it cannot beat. Season 5, episode 12, because of the, the magic between Imperioli and Drea DiMatteo, they both won Emmys, I think, for this episode more than anything. Chris's first reaction when he hears the news, and I've interviewed Imperioli on this podcast, Cinephile, and I said his best acting the entire show was when he goes to the gas station and he sees that guy, and he goes, oh, my God, that's what my life's going to be if I have to tell and I have to run. I can't do this. I'm not going to be some guy with a mullet and three kids and picking up chips and burritos. <laughs> I'm not doing it. And I, I, I said, yeah. right? A lesser, a lesser show would have had him confessing to somebody saying, I can't do it. I can't live the straight life. He just, that look he gives, I said, oh my God, it's so good. Uh, Blue Comet is amazing, particularly Bacala's death. I thought it was so vivid. Uh, the way that they packed so much action, the final 20 minutes with Silvio. 
Whitecaps, uh, it's amazing. You guys wrote it perfectly. Rather than who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, it's who's afraid of Virginia Mook. You got two actors going at it. And Soprano Home Movies, I think, is criminally underrated. My wife, while watching it for the first time, loved Bobby Bacala. She thought he was so endearing and so heartwarming. And she was broken by the fact that Tony poisoned and polluted this guy's soul forever by making him go to my home country of Canada and killing some French-Canadian guy who's just fighting for his kid and just just kills him. He's so unassuming. He's in a laundromat. Alan, you first. Those four episodes, which one do you like the most or some personal remembrances about those episodes? I would say probably of those long-term parking, although White Caps is pretty amazing, too. They all are. But long-term parking is there was these fans of the show who just wanted a straightforward mob drama. And that's not mostly what The Sopranos was. It was doing psychiatry and sociological commentary and family stories and everything else. But when it wanted to just do straightforward mob stuff, like in that episode, it could be amazing. And you could understand why the fans wanted the show to be that all the time. Maybe not with, you know, a beloved character dying. But you get my point. It's just about the FBI versus the mob and almost everything else gets put aside for that week. Matt, for you, of those four episodes, which one did you like the most? Well, gosh, I mean, it's tough. I mean, I, Whitecaps is a Pantheon episode for sure, but I think my, my own personal taste might run more towards Soprano home movies because one of the, one of the aspects of the show that we touched on at the, at the reunion last night and that I don't think gets enough appreciation is these one-offs, these little, these kind of self-contained, almost like a little, like, ensemble movie within the show like it's almost like it's got parentheses around it the sopranos did those really well and sopranos home soprano home movies is a great example of that the whole thing is you know taking place out at that lake house there's really only four characters in it and it feels like a little stage play you know it's and and you know it's a family uh, event where things go south and and the sopranos did a number of those that were i thought superb including um Prozhai Lavushka from season three which is about uh the aftermath of libya's death and and there's that whole long sequence set in a, the reception at the Soprano household, where almost every one of the characters gets a beautiful little aria. And then uh, season five, Marco Polo, The Pool Party, the episode where Tony and Carmela get back together after their estrangement. I think that one's great. And then in season season um, six, uh, or is it seven? Alan would know. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. John's Sacrimony Request. I think that's six. seven. Yeah. That's six. No, no, that's six. Okay, yeah. We should probably distinguish why we why we say season seven since yeah, we're on I, I like the subject. That, no, I like that you guys put it in the book. The fact that Chase said they had to do it because it would affect the salaries, right? The actors. Yeah, the way the Hollywood guilds work, every new season a show is made, everybody gets raises. So sometimes you'll see this Breaking Bad did it too. Mad Men did it as well. They you know treat basically two seasons worth of episodes as one, so they can avoid the budget going up too much. I know it was a. <laughs> I kept reading that going, all right, that makes more, more sense now. We're talking right now with Matt zoller Sites and Alan Seppenwall. Their book called The Soprano Sessions is a must-read. Check it out. It's available now with the 20th anniversary of the show. How about this roll call of actors, and especially for guys who have not seen the show, or gals like my producers, Dan and Rick. Listen to this. These are supporting actors who just showed up for a few episodes, maybe a season. Robert Patrick playing a gambling addict. Robert Loja. Robert Loja as Feech Lamana. David Strathairn. I love him as Wegler. Furio, just for the dance. Steve Buscemi as Tony B. Ben Kingsley, Lauren Bacall playing themselves. So did John Favreau. Frankie Valley, Frank Vincent, Annabella Ciora as at Spitfire Gloria. Will Arnett, one of my favorite comedic actors. John Hurt as Vin McKazian. Sidney Pollock, outstanding as a prison guard. Lin-Manuel Miranda, Lady Gaga. Alan, of all those actors, which one did you think, man, that guy or girl was really special? Shiora, um, you know, it's and it's a real shame what happened to her career after that, which has been written about extensively over the last year. But, 
you know, she had been sort of memorable in the 90s, and then things didn't quite go anywhere. She turns up near the end of season three as Gloria Trillo, and it was just, and the show was kind of wandering around after Nancy Marchand died, because the original plot of season three was Tony has to be nice to his mother to keep her from testifying against him in this RICO trial about the tickets. Uh, And they had to scramble and start over from scratch. And suddenly it finds this focus with this just electrifying performance by her. And she's only, I think, four episodes total, but they're four of the most memorable episodes the show ever did. Matt, for you, of those actors I cited, which one did you really think was off? You're going to have to give me the list again, dude. That was a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Robert Patrick is a gambling addict. Robert Loja, Feech Lamana, David Strathairn is Wegler. Furio's Dance, Steve Buscemi, Tony B, Ben Kingsley, Lauren Bacall, Frank Vincent, Frankie Valley, John Favreau, Annabelle Sierra, Will Arnett, John Hurd is Jim McCreasy. It's like one of those KTEL commercials from the 70s, and right. many, many more. Yeah, yeah. Lynn Manuel Miranda and Lady Gaga. <laughs> Which one do you like? You know, I, I'll, I'll tell you who I grew to appreciate to a much greater extent than when I watched the show originally is, is uh, Frank Vincent. Yeah. And Frank Vincent is somebody who has been reliably excellent in a lot of films and television shows, and we just lost him not too long ago. And and he's in a role here. I think I took him for granted because he's played so many mobsters and so many kind of New York, you know, angry, angry, apoplectic, tough guys. I mean, even in Do the Right Thing, he has that one scene, you know, where he's driving <laughs> through the neighborhood in the Cadillac. It's like, don't be mm, with yeah. the water there, yeah. you know. Moe and Joe Black. I don't know who it was. Come yeah, on. exactly. They should be locked under the jail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he was great. And and Chase said, like, you know, he interviewed him. He, he auditioned him uh, for the role of Uncle Junior. And and Frank Vincent said, you know, I know you're probably going to go with Chianese, but... Uh, you know, there's a certain number of guys who who you're you're going to have to cast in in this show, and I'm one of those guys. And eventually, he did cast him. But I think like there's a depth of feeling to his performance as Phil Leotardo on that show that I don't think has been properly appreciated, particularly after the death of his brother. And also, there's some there's some like energy, weird energy there with his hatred of Vito, where you know he you know it seems like he's de- he's sort of suppressing some issues of his own. And as Alan pointed out in in the recap of that episode, uh, well, Alan, you can you can point this out. But the fact yeah, he comes right out before, of the closet. Right before Phil is about to murder Vito, he literally comes out of a closet. I know. That was brilliant when you guys pointed that out. <laughs> I love that. I just That's such a wonderful detail. You're right. I'm glad you guys pointed that out. I love this detail you guys pointed out. In terms of social codes, a couple episodes I love. Irregular around the margins, because it just shows how phone call, like uh, that, that game of telephone they play with Chris, Tony, Adriana, how a rumor spreads, how how vicious it can be, and particularly Boca, the fact that Uncle Junior, what he does with his lady, how that is just verboten in this world. And I love the fact you guys point out it's an awesome homage to the public enemy. Rather than Cagney and a grapefruit, you got Chinese doing it with the cake. But, Alan, that's, again, mob life. And, you know, obviously I love Scorsese's Goodfellas as much as anybody. It's about codes, and the show perfectly demonstrated that, particularly those two episodes. But what's funny is how often the codes are meaningless. Like, there's just all these times where someone will, you know, state some kind of rule, and then you can find six other things in the run of the series that violates it. Like, when in university, when Tony starts shoving Ralphie up against the fence, Ralphie's like, you put your hands on me, I'm a made guy! <laughs> and when I, when I said to David Chase in these interviews we did, well, he did that to Mikey Palmese, he did it to this guy and that guy, was this an actual rule? Chase just laughed and said, no, no, these guys just said whatever they wanted to, to justify whatever they wanted to do in that moment matt the show's violence season three episodes four five and six particularly melfi's rape which i think lorraine bracco's acting was incredible and particularly episode six university where joe pantaliano one of the most beloved characters as you guys said in the book if it's a if this was a scorsese film he'd be playing the joe pesci role he beats tracy did you feel 
especially now when I rewatch it again. And I know people, Claire Smith is a great writer at ESPN. She's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. She goes, I know it's a brilliant show and it's so well written and all the rest of it, but I stopped watching it because I said it's too much violence towards women. It was too much to take. I found it too appalling. Did you think the show went too far? Well, I don't know about too far necessarily because of the kind of world that it was depicting. But, you know, uh, one of the things that Chase got into in his interviews with us was that that was around the time, you know, you notice there was a marked a marked uptick in ugliness in season two. That was a season where they started, um, dra- you know, showing collateral damage, whether violent or financial against uh, people who weren't in the mob, who weren't even affiliated with the criminal underworld. And, you know, that's the one where Davy Scatino gets ruined. And we got, Alan and I got a lot of mail from people watching the show who were saying, the show is too unlikable. I don't like the show anymore. And it's like, why? Like, when they were killing mobsters, you were okay with it. But when they bankrupt a guy who owns a sporting goods store, who presumably probably reminds you of yourself because he's, you know, he's a New Jersey suburban homeowning middle-class guy, that's too far for you like that's a bridge too far and and you know i think the the show was constantly fighting this battle where a certain segment of the audience was getting off on the gangsters and getting off on the violence and chase and the other writers kept trying to find ways to to complicate that to make people feel like god i shouldn't be identifying with these people they're they're really quite monstrous and that stretch of episodes in season three you know employee of the month Another toothpick where Bobby Bacala Sr. kills these two guys really brutally and then coughs himself to death with, like, (laughs) blood coming out of his mouth. And then a university, which is essentially about the mob's complicity in sex trafficking. I mean, that's that's that subject and, like, how, how they treat women as disposable. That whole stretch of episodes is really about these these kind of parasitic characters and and uh, the ingrained misogyny of that culture is a part of it and I think they stare at it in a very unflinching way and Melfi is another person who comments on it throughout the run of the show so I think there were times when they when they lost control of that narrative and they might have cro- and they might have crossed the line and the show itself became misogynist like I think the the death of uh, what's her name Lorraine Coluzzo yes. In naked, season yeah. five, which was basically Chase even admitted that was just his revenge against a column, uh, a columnist for the New York Post who happened to be a woman who had written some unflattering things about season four, and that was kind of you know that was kind of a cheap thing to do, and and I I, I was kind of grossed out by that even at the time, but uh, but for the most part I think they stayed on the side of the angels, which is not necessarily the same thing as saying that they was a pleasant show to watch. And also, season three, episode one, you guys correctly pointed out when the FBI is telling Adriana, you're not sure, is this actually the telling or is the show getting off on the fact just how pretty Drea DiMatteo is? Alan, did you have that same vibe as far as the violence and what um, Matt's talking about? Yeah, I do, and I think, and sometimes it can be very difficult to rewatch. I was glad that, you know, when it came time to divvy up who was going to write the first draft of each essay, he wound up with Employee of the Month, another toothpick in university, because while I had to rewatch them, obviously, they're not that fun to think about. So, um, but I, I do think for the most part, the show was able to stay on the right side of the line where it's, you know, it's commenting on it rather than reveling in it. Every now and then it would revel, though, for sure. Got about five more minutes here left with Matt and Al, and their new book is The Soprano Sessions. I encourage all of you to check it out. The music of the show, as much as I love the show, it's my favorite drama, Alan. I wasn't crazy about the music. It's a lot of music I don't care for, with a few exceptions. I did love this magic moment. Every time I hear that song, I think of Soprano Home Movies and Poor Bobby. I mentioned the song, uh, Oh Child. And Van Morrison's Glad Tidings is used perfectly with a Tony Blundetto death. That's one of the best death scenes. I love the way they call back that music. But what I loved about your book is that Chase even says, well, I didn't want to imitate the Scorsese 
says he's 60s music, which I love. Like, I love the fact he used uh, Dion on the Belmonts, I Wonder Why. Of course, De Niro used that in A Bronx Tale. And Chase, because I wish I had that one back. I didn't want to have that in the first episode. Right. I didn't wanna, right? So what did you think of the music? Because I don't think it's particularly good. And then Chase even points, you know what? A lot of the music we wanted to have it, Tony would listen to, and let's face it, a lot of that music wasn't very good anyways, but I thought it was authentic to the character. He did, well, he, well he made sure to distinguish between, you know, he said there were two kinds of music on the show. There was a kind of music that Tony and those guys would listen to, and then there was the show's taste in music, and those were often two different things. And sorry, Alan, continue what you were going to say. I was just going to say exactly that, but I, I liked the music. I thought it was, what do you need both of us for? We're the same person. <laughs> That's great stuff. Go ahead, Alan. Uh, no, I I, I like the music more than you do uh, on the show, and I think it, it's an interesting character because part of the point is what you got at before. It's it's a show in New Jersey. The the mob has the inferiority complex there. He's trying to make it about a show about guys who have grown up watching the kind of movies that would play Dion on the Belmonts, would do this and wish that their lives were like that, but they're not. And so that's why, you know, Tony, Tony is listening to the music he's listening to, and often the show is playing this esoteric stuff because it's trying to create a very different feel than you would get from Goodfellas or Godfather or any of these other films that Scorsese or Coppola had done. Before we get to the ending, God help us, Matt, psychiatry, ultimately, did it help or have no impact on Tony Soprano? Well, that's, you know, like a lot of other questions you can ask about the show. There's, it's not a, I don't think you can say yes or no to that. I mean, I think it, I think it was enormously beneficial to him in the sense that it taught him to understand, first of all, it taught him to access his emotional interior, which was something he was not really able to do when he started therapy, and then to understand it, and, to, and particularly to understand uh, his subconscious and, and to interpret his own dreams. And if you look at the dream sequences on the show and the way that they progress, one thing that I noticed during this rewatch is that he's kind of at the mercy of his own dreams early in the show, but then by the time you get to Funhouse, he becomes an almost a lucid dreamer where he's sort of interpreting and commenting on his own dreams, and it is Tony, not Melfi, who interprets that uh, that pussy is the rat and he needs to be executed. Like, he has an assist from Melfi, but it's really Tony who does that work. And by the time we get to the test dream, Tony is, you know, his dreams are much more sophisticated. They're not just about particular problems in his life. They're about his entire personality. And he's doing a lot of the unraveling, and Melfi is basically just there to check his math. And so, I, you know, I think he became much, much more sophisticated in terms of understanding himself, but it's what he did with it that's problematic. Like, you know, he continued to avoid epiphanies, large and small, that could have made him a truly different person, a better person, a nicer person, a more genuine person, not a criminal. And I think that was ultimately the entire purpose of Melfi in therapy was to try to get this guy, if not to necessarily make him not be a criminal, which is probably too late for him, to at least accept some responsibility for the evil that he embodies and, and abets. And, and he never quite got there. And I think, to me, we'll get to the ending, but like that's, that feeds my own personal take on what that cut to black is about. And now we get to the ending here. I mean, it's so well hotly disputed, still is. Alan, uh, TJ Quinn's a great uh, reporter here at ESPN. He tweeted yesterday his thoughts in the ending. He says, someone does get whacked, and Chase messed up when he called it a death scene. But it's not Tony's death. It's our death. It's the viewer who gets shot in the head. And he, part of his reasoning, he said, is because, you know, you have multiple POV, right? It's our POV and it's Tony's. But that last shot, when Gandolfini looks up, it's our POV, and we don't hear anything, and we get cut to black. So he actually says it's the audience getting whacked, not uh, Tony Soprano. But go ahead. Your interpretation of it. 
Well, I mean, I think that's certainly a valid interpretation. I think it's un- unmistakable, and this was even really before Chase wound up talking to us a lot about the final scene, much more than either of us expected, that the scene is about death. Whether Tony dies, whether you know Meadow dies, whether nobody dies, whether the audience dies is immaterial. The scene is about reminding you very painfully and acutely of this idea that we're all mortal, we're not here forever, life can be taken away from us at any moment, it's this precious gift. Um, you know, Tony has really squandered the gift so far, but he's still around, and so it's trying to put you in that headspace of, Maybe he could die here, and this is what it would feel like. Maybe he doesn't. What actually happens, I think, is much less interesting to me after the process of all of this than just sort of thinking about the meaning and the feeling of it. Yeah, bottom line, Matt, it's not definitive, right? Chase makes that clear in the book, and I want people to, to buy the book because you're right. He goes in-depth with you guys with the ending and says more than he wanted to say, uh, especially as he throws a little insult at you guys good-naturedly. But, Matt, it's open to interpretation, which is the best part of ending. It should be open, right? Well, I think so. And, you know, and I will, uh, I, I'm going to have to toot my own horn here and say that, you know, the recap that I wrote of that final episode, which went up shortly after midnight on the day that it aired for the first time, I said my my take on it was that David Chase whacked the viewer. Like, that was my first impulse, because I'm a guy who's very concerned with formal properties of film and television, maybe to, maybe to my detriment in some respects. But that was my first take on it. And I've kind of moved away from that partly as a result of having worked on this book with Alan and I feel I feel somewhat differently like I I don't think it's that simple I do think that it's more about it's more of a spiritual reckoning and it's more like something along the lines of what Alan was saying which is if we could if our life could be ended at any moment what will it have amounted to like if we could take stock in ourselves in that moment before our life cuts to black you know, if like death comes to us now or at some other point, like what did it add up to? Did were we a good person? Did we make good choices? Did we bring good into the world or more or mostly evil? And I think um, I think you have to look at Tony's life and see the disappointment there. You know, like he's there's a lot of human potential. He's much smarter, more sensitive more empathetic than almost any of the other guys in his organization. And he sees himself, I think, more clearly, and he sees other people more clearly, but that still doesn't help him become anything other than a mobster who steals and kills. And and uh, I think, and ultimately, uh, Dr. Krakauer may have the last laugh on all of them, and maybe on us. Yeah. Great stuff. The Soprano Sessions. And just to let you guys know how much I love the book, here's a couple of my favorite parts. Matt, I love the fact you described Gandolfini. It reminded me of Zampano. Anthony Quinn's character in La Strada, one of my favorite movies, Fellini. What a reference that is. And how about this footnote, which comes on page 139. I've been waiting the entire interview to read this one. Uh, Gloria, an openly devoted Buddhist, even after Tony paraphrases one of Gloria's lines from the zoo. Footnote reads, if the zoo is a place where warm and illuminating things happen for Tony and Gloria, does that make it the Sun Zoo? Thank you. You've been a great audience. (laughs) (laughs) Who who came up with that footnote? I got to know. That was me. Most of the dad jokes on the footnotes are mine, and and uh, most and the and the meticulous annotation of all of AJ's relationships to farting are Alan's. <laughs> um, True story. I love the inside Hollywood stuff on the show too. You mentioned the test stream. Annette Benning is so good. My one small quibble as I let you guys go, and I listen. I'm a huge movie geek. I'm with you guys. I'm a total nerd. I know W.C. Fields, the bank dick, but when Gandolfini referenced it once as Tony, I said, would this guy really know W.C. Fields, the bank dick? Alan, back me up. I know he's a movie guy. I know he likes history. He watches TCM. But would he really get that kind of a reference? 
I think he would because, like, I grew up. I'm I'm a couple years younger than Tony was supposed to be, uh, and I grew up watching like Abbott and Costello movies, which were 30, 40 years old when I was a kid. Because you know, in that generation, you watched what was on, and a lot of what was on was just old material made for grownups. There weren't like he wouldn't have grown up on you know Nickelodeon or cartoons or anything else. So he would have been soaking in a lot of this stuff, you know, above and beyond just his generalist interest in history. All right, fair enough. The Soprano Sessions from Matt Zoller's site to Alan Sepinwall. Follow both these terrific guys on Twitter. Matt, in particular, very funny when it comes to politics, and Sepinwall, like many, is a tortured New York sports fan. Check out their book, The Soprano <laughs> Sessions. Appreciate you guys so much for the time. Honestly, the book is invaluable, and I really, uh, really appreciate your time today, both of you. It was Thank our you pleasure. so much. A Hollywood career spanning decades, and the tales of Tinseltown are told here. Inside the Lion's Den with Ben Lyons. Hey, what's up? It's Ben Lyons here on Cinephile. Appreciate you, Adnan, for for having me on. It was great to celebrate the new year down in Hawaii. Unfortunately, I can't think of too many great Hawaiian films uh, that come to mind. It's all kind of, you know, uh, the big bounce with Sarah Foster and Owen Wilson and Aloha with uh, Emma Stone that comes to mind. The Descendants with George Clooney and, of course, Moana. So there have been some good ones over the years. But I was down in Hawaii where I made my annual favorite films of 2018 list, uh, favorite films of the year list. And uh, not the best movies. Not the movies that I think are the best. I think if I were picking 10 films to be nominated for Best Picture, it might be a different list. But this is my favorite. Uh, these are my favorite films. These are the films that meant the most to me. And so uh, in no order whatsoever, here we go. Hearts Beat Loud. I saw it with you, Adnan, at the Sundance Film Festival. It stars Nick Offerman as a dad whose uh, daughter, played by Kiersey Clemens, is going off to college. And so he secretly, unbeknownst to her, releases on iTunes songs that they've made together. And the songs turned out to be pretty good. And they get a following. And they start to get some hits online. And he has to then tell his daughter that he's surprise, surprise, launched their music as a band. And it's just a really sweet coming-of-age father-daughter story. Ted Danson as well. Definitely check out Hearts Beat Loud. Sundance movie, as is Won't You Be My Neighbor, the documentary about Mr. Rogers. Boy, what a life and what a dedication to uplifting others. Um, a soul that should be celebrated. I love the film. I can't wait to see Tom Hanks in the feature version next year for Sony. Uh, another Sundance movie, The Last Race, a documentary about the last racetrack in Long Island, directed by Michael Dweck, who's a photographer. This is his first narrative documentary. And wow, what a wonderful job he does telling the story of these working class people in Long Island who sacrificed their weekends to uh, race these stock cars for little or no money. It's about the husband and, and wife who have owned the racetrack for generations and are hanging on by a thread. It's visceral. He mounts the cameras on these cars that are hanging on by the nuts and bolts and you can hear the iron against iron and it's just mesmerizing. Check out The Last Race from director Michael Dweck. I loved Black Klansman. Shout out to Spike Lee. Once a Nick, always a Nick fan, right? I was with Spike at the Black Klansman reception here in LA the night the Knicks got their first win of the season against the Hawks, and it's been all downhill ever since. But Black Klansman, an entertaining piece of American history. Adam Driver, John David Washington, Topher Grace, who is just hilarious as David Duke. He's just menacing and evil and really shines a light on the disgusting 
amazing person that he is. Uh, a wonderful job from Topher and Black Klansman. Free Solo, documentary about a climber who climbs El Capitan with no ropes. Now, my brother-in-law, Adnan, Mariah's brother from Holiday, Utah, he's climbed that mountain, but he did it with ropes. And he slept in the sleeping bags, hanging thousands of feet off the ground. That, to me, is amazing. That, to me, is worthy of a documentary. But here in, in Free Solo, this guy climbs the mountain with no ropes. It's terrifying. It's incredible, though, because it makes you question what it is to live life. His life on the ground is unfulfilled, and that's the most dangerous place for him to be. So check out Free Solo, not for the faint of heart. Absolutely loved it. I really enjoyed the favorite, Emma Stone. She seems to be a staple on my top 10 list every year. Here she is up opposite Olivia Coleman and uh, Rachel Weiss in a period piece costume drama that really takes the piss out of it. There's a lot of humor in it, the absurdity of for which the, 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 uh, for which it's set in the times and how people lived back then and, uh, how there's this war going off thousands of miles away, but here they are in the, in the, in the castle and they're safe and they're oblivious to the, the pain and suffering that's happening across the country. Uh, amazing, amazing film. Check out The Favorite. A Star is Born. I know it's commercial. I love Bradley Cooper's directorial debut with Lady Gaga. It's the third or fourth time this story's been told now, but it's a modernized version with Dave Chappelle and uh, Andrew Dice Clay brilliantly cast in supporting roles. For Cooper to not only direct himself, not only to play music, but to have to hold his own opposite one of the great performers of a generation and Lady Gaga, truly, truly remarkable and, and very authentic at times to the life of a big rock star, the private jets and the helicopters and the drugs and the hotel rooms. And I just thought it was really well done. So that's eight or nine of my films. The Rider, Chloe Zhao directing uh, this story about a bull rider. The movie opens with him taking the staples out of his head from brain surgery, from falling off the bull. And now he, much like uh, the guy in Free Solo, has to question, well, is the thing that makes me feel alive going to kill me? And if I don't do it, well, then will I be alive? And what's amazing about this is that it's all real people, all real bull riders, not actors, telling this narrative piece from Chloe Zhao. It's a beautiful love letter to to the great Northwest and the, the Great Plains and the, 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 the Western Mountains. And, and, the, and it's just amazing how it's shot and how it's told and how these people are living off the land, living off these bulls, off breaking wild horses, and it's almost like cowboy times, but is there a place for that in the modern world? Uh, beautiful film. It was on Obama's top 10 as well called The Rider. And last but not least, the number one film of the year for me, it's Adam McKay's Vice. You know, to take on the story of Dick Cheney was not an easy task for McKay because Cheney was notoriously private and was not very outspoken publicly and really moved in the shadows of the American political scene in the last 30 years. And it's terrifying. It's haunting. It's scary. It's eye-opening. It's shocking. It's hilarious at times. Amy Adams is incredible as is Steve Carell, as Donald Rumsfeld, and Tyler Perry, as Colin Powell, and uh, Sam Rockwell as uh, George Bush, the scenes he has opposite Dick Cheney, played by Christian Bale. Christian Bale, my vote for the Oscar, too. Uh, if you look for Bale to get a, a, a win at the Screen Actors Guild, playing a real-life character, look for him to then go on and win at the Oscars. So Vice is my number one. That's my top ten. Unfortunately, uh, sorry to bother you, didn't make the list. 
came in just short, Adnan. There you have it, my top 10. Be sure to download the Lions Den podcast on iTunes. Appreciate the love. Getting to go to Sundance with you, dude, was a highlight. Getting to do another Academy Awards with you is definitely a highlight. Introducing Mrs. Adnan Verk, your wonderful wife, to uh, John Favreau and Jennifer Aniston and Jimmy Kimmel at the Oscar party was definitely a highlight of 2018. Um, what a wonderful year in film, and it's been great to be a part in a small way of cinephile here. Uh, thank you for giving me some real estate on your podcast. You do such a great job, man. You break down all the films every single week, and you provide me with the soundtrack to my Saturday morning bike rides along the Pacific Ocean here in Los Angeles. So keep up the great work. I love being a part of the cinephile family. Shout out to Rich Passmore for making the trip to Tribeca. Came down and supported our film, The American Meme, which you can watch now on Netflix. Uh, but yeah, that's my 2018 top 10 in the Lions Den. I'm Ben Lyons. Porzingis forever. Peace, Adnan. All right, as a pleasure to bring in guest reviewer who has now become a staple of Cinephile, Claire Atkins. Unfortunately, not in studio. She's been on the road working hard, uh, but she's here joining us to talk about a film starring Felicity Jones. It's not RBG, but a fictionalized version of RBG. Claire, tell us all about it. So thank you for having me review this movie. I feel that 2018 was certainly the year of RBG. My book club read the book RBG, and of course I watched the documentary, which got a lot of press. So it does feel a little bit that RBG is is, is kind of oversaturated. So I think some people are going to be tired when they see that there's another uh, piece of medium out about her. Uh, called On the Basis of Sex. And, and like Adnan said, it stars Felicity Jones. You probably know her from Star Wars. Uh, you probably know her from Theory of Everything. And she's, she's good in the role. The movie is about uh, her time at Harvard Law School through her first sex discrimination case. She argued in front of the Supreme Court in the early 1970s. She is good in the role, like I said. It was originally intended for Natalie Portman, who probably didn't want to bore audiences anymore after Jackie. So uh, it went to to her and um, her husband is uh, played by Army Hammer, who is incredibly good looking. And for him to play Marty Ginsburg was a little bit of a reach for me. But it's a beautiful love story. And if you don't know the story, it's really remarkable how he stood by her through the trials and tribulations of being uh, a a young lawyer. And he really treats her as his equal. And so it's perfect for Hollywood, but I think this movie falls back on a lot of biopic cliches. So if you're a fan of Hidden Figures or Mona Lisa Smile, I think this is the movie for you. And it does a nice job of showcasing why her early years were so important to the history of U.S. gender law. And it's a feel-good movie for sure. I recommend all mothers and daughters go see it, but it's not going to stick out to me, you know, through this award season. I, you know, I think it's just going to, it's going to be a nice January film and, you know, we'll move on from there. Sounds like about three Maple Leafs. I would give it two and a half. I I think it's really cliche and, you know, it doesn't surprise at any times. It's a story worth telling and I'm glad it's being told, but, you know, I, I mean, Justin Theroux makes a nice appearance, uh, and so that will surprise audiences. But other than that, it's it's not very memorable. All right, good to know. So maybe check out the documentary, RBG, instead. Earlier we did our top ten of the year. I apologize, I did not verse you on this one. But if you want to give us a handful of your favorite movies of the year, what would they be of 2018? 
I would definitely go with the favorite. As uh, mentioned on previous podcasts, it was it was clearly going to be written and, and made for me. I, I can't get over I, I still think about it today. Uh, I, please go see it. it it's, I think it's, it's just going to surprise and shock you, and I think it should. Um, I, I'm, with, I, I'm with the Cinephile podcast with First Reformed. I, I still can't stop thinking about it. I think Ethan Hawke is incredible. I also recommend you, you go out and see it or, or rent it in however form you can. Uh, I'm, I'm with Sandic that eighth grade really stuck for me. I think it's something different. I've never seen it before. Um, I think I really resonate as, as a young woman. So I, I would say those three were really the ones that, that I will remember from 2018. I, I was also a huge fan of Star is Born. I'm totally with Adnan that's very melodramatic, but I mean, it was really great. And as a big music fan, I think Bradley Cooper really, really hit the nail on the head. And a lot of the music is done by Lucas Nelson, who's Willie Nelson's son, and Jason Isbell. And, and being from Nashville, those are two huge acts that I'm so happy are getting kind of a, a main stay in the media. So I think those are my favorite films of the year. Oddly enough, with The Star is Born, Claire, now I feel it's underappreciated. After seeing Bohemian Rhapsody win Best Picture and seeing Bradley Cooper not win Best Actor, Lady Gaga not win Best Actress, I, I hope the movie does get more luck because I'm with you. I think it's very good. Like you said, melodramatic. But uh, for see it being shut out, I would be surprised. I do think it is a, a quality film we're seeing. And it's nice to have a movie that critics love and audiences loved as well. It's a big popular movie, which is nice to see. Right. And I and I and I loved Black Panther, as you know, most of America did. And, you, you know, I'm with the Oscars that it, is it meant for the big popular film versus the more artistic films. But, uh, you know, I, I love that. I think Marvel has done a wonderful job with that. And to make it not so that if a movie is coming out every two months, you're tired of the franchise, they keep it new and fresh. And so I, I was also a fan of that as well. She rocks. Check her out on Twitter. Claire underscore Atkins. Thanks, Claire. Thanks, Cinephile. All right. Thanks so much to Matt Zoller, Sites, Alan Sepmal. Their book is called The Soprano Sessions. Uh, thanks to Claire Atkins for the guest review. Thanks to Dan Stanz and Rick Passmore for offering their top ten as well. Fingers crossed. Big-time guests coming up on Cinephile, as big a movie star as it gets. All right, all right, all right. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.